Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. Let me tell you that uh, though treaties have been a significant portion of my professional life, uh, I acknowledge that the subject is pretty dull and dry. So if it is so for me, I can imagine for you. So uh, you might be asking yourself, why on earth am I here on a rainy Saturday morning uh, to listen to a presentation on treaties? Well, let me give you a few reasons why you should be here. The first one is that um, uh, uh, you all read the Bible, uh, and so if you take a look at the book of Joshua, Joshua 9, there is a treaty between Israel and the Gibeonites. So just think what a greater appreciation of the Bible you will have after the presentation. Uh, the very concept of covenant, uh, which essentially is another name for a treaty, is, is a lens uh, through which uh, one uh, uh, can uh, can read uh, uh, can read the Bible. Uh, you know that there is this covenant theology, also a branch uh, within Catholicism, with Dennis McCarthy and so on. Thirdly, if you look at the handouts uh, that Steve is very kindly distributing, you will see that in the Code of Canon Law, uh, there is a canon, Canon Three, on the special. Uh, importance of treaties, uh, even within the internal law of the church uh, in canon law. And so it's no menial stuff. Uh, if I've not uh, uh, succeeded in, in convincing you that it is worth your being here, when offer it up in expiation for your sins, which, if you are like me, uh, are certainly many. Um, well, from, from these words, uh, uh, which were meant in a light tone, but uh, they're also somewhat uh, deep in the sense that um, you will see that for the, Holy, uh, for, for the church, for the Holy See, treaties uh, are certainly a human affair, but uh, with um, um, spiritual ramifications too. Actually, whatever the church does... Uh, uh, as the mystical body of Christ uh, cannot be relegated to a, a human dimension only. At the cost of giving you already uh, the conclusion of my presentation, uh, I will say that the Holy See, when deciding how to approach treaties, uh, always has in mind uh, the defining principle of its own internal legal order, that is canon law, and of its international activities, which is the salvation of souls. The last canon in the Code of Canon Law, in fact, uses this expression, which inspires all that the Holy See does internationally, and of course, its legal order internally. Holy See and treaties, uh, well, in order to be on the same uh, wavelength, uh, uh, what is the Holy See and, and what is a treaty? Uh, the Holy See, see essentially means the chair. It's the chair of St. Peter. It is called the Holy See Apostolic See. For example, that very canon that you saw uh, reproduced in the handout uh, 
uh, is from the Latin Code of 1983. There is also a code of canon law for the Eastern churches, the Eastern Catholic churches, and it uses the expression Holy See, not Apostolic See, as it is in the code of canon law, simply because in the Eastern churches, even the patriarchs uh, are called uh, Apostolic See. So in order to make the distinction between the Bishop of Rome and the others, they use directly the expression Holy See. But for all intent and purposes, if you go through the uh, Code of Canon Law or other church documents, whenever the expression Apostolic See is used, uh, it's synonymous with uh, Holy See. So it is the Pope uh, aided uh, by uh, the Roman Curia, the various dicasteries uh, uh, in Rome, and it is essentially the, uh, the supreme authority within the church. And the Holy See has been an international legal subject uh, on a foot of equality in its uh, international relations with states since time immemorial. The research uh, becomes uh, a factual research, that is, uh, when did the Holy See start uh, having diplomatic relations uh, with other states, uh, uh, entering into treaties. So we can discuss about uh, the details, uh, but uh, uh, if you look at the website uh, of the Holy See itself, or the Permanent Observer Mission uh, to the United Nations, they refer to the 4th, 5th century as the time in which the Holy See uh, became and was recognized as an international legal subject. So in reality, it's the most uh, ancient uh, international legal subject in the international legal order. By international legal subject, I mean that um, it is a sovereign independent entity capable of entering into relations with other international legal subjects, states first, but also international organizations and other sui generis uh, legal subjects. Uh, the Vatican City State is a separate international legal subject. Once again, Sometimes in common parlance, uh, they are called uh, the same way, Holy See or Vatican. Um, in reality, the Holy See has always been an international legal subject. The Vatican City State uh, is a territorial entity, itself an international legal subject, that was only established uh, in 1929. You know that for centuries the, there were the papal states, and so they were states, when there was the so-called debellation, that is, uh, they were disbanded in 1870 with the entry into Rome by uh, the Italian army. Um, there were no papal states anymore. There was no Vatican City State as such. What does it mean? Not much, because the Holy See, as an international legal subject, continued being an international legal subject even without any territorial dimension. 
It was, uh, it was invited to mediate international disputes. It entered into agreements as Holy See with other states. So what I'm saying is that uh, to be an international legal subject, it's a question of fact. That is that the others uh, look at you, and it's not a matter of recognition by them, but the others see you and enter into relations with you as, uh, as uh, a sovereign independent entity. When Pius XI uh, commented on the agreement, uh, the, the Lateran Pact in 1929, that set up the Vatican City State, he mentioned that uh, it was simply that basic territorial dimension that helps an international legal subject to uh, pursue its international activities. But nobody has ever doubted that even without a territorial dimension, the Holy See would still be an international legal subject. I understand that it might not be obvious, but I hope that uh, I gave the idea, okay? Uh, so we are talking about uh, international subjectivity of the holy chair of Peter that, um, that has been such uh, since time immemorial. In fact, at the UN, uh, uh, some of the conventions relate directly to the Vatican City State only when there is an obvious territorial dimension postal convention, telecommunication, everything having to do with uh, this uh, uh, territorial dimension. Otherwise, is the Holy See that, is, uh, that has a permanent observer mission uh, to the UN. It's not the Vatican City State. Okay, how does the Holy See operate? Uh, well, as I indicated there, it operates by legates, and once again, this is a term of art that is used in the Code of Canon Law, which are the permanent representatives of the Holy See. It operates like, uh, like, uh, like, like what is the reality through both sinners and saints. Uh, the father in his opening prayer was mentioning the Secretary of State of, of the, the saint, Pope Pius X, that is Mary del Valle, for whom there is a process for his beatification. And he was certainly uh, a Secretary of State, a most effective and saintly person. Uh, Catherine of Siena, whose feast day is today, um, was called upon by the Pope of the time and by the Florentines to mediate the difficult situation that had arisen in the years from 1376 to 1378. So we have a saint, one of the great glories of the Dominican order and uh, of, of Italy, playing an active role in bringing about peace as a diplomat in a very tense situation. In fact, all of this led to a peace treaty in 1378 in Tivoli. In more recent time, Pope John Paul II 
uh, played a key role in the mediation of the Beagle Channel dispute between Chile and Argentina. So once again, a saint at work. And if this, this were not enough, we have today in the audience my wife, who wrote a monograph on Catherine of Siena, and we have Jeff Transillo, who wrote a monograph on John Paul II. So for 50 bucks, uh, you really got something today for being here. <laughs> okay, so what is the Holy See? What is the Vatican City State? What is a treaty? Well, in order to understand what, what a treaty is, I would suggest that you take a look at the handout, if you have it. I reproduced Article 2 from the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties, the so-called Treaty on Treaties, uh, which has been in force since 1980 and to which the Holy See is a party. It says that a treaty is an international agreement concluded between states in written form and governed by international law, whether embodied in a single instrument or in two, on two or more related instruments and whatever its particular designation. So as you can see, it has to be between two sovereign independent entities. Two states, of course, can decide to subject a certain contract to municipal law, that is to domestic law, and therefore that is not a treaty. Uh, if two states, for example, sign a contract on the purchase of the building for the embassy, of, uh, of, of a state, uh, they are not likely to subject it to public international law. They will subject it to the domestic law uh, of the land, and therefore that is not uh, a treaty. So it has to be governed by international law, and it doesn't matter what the designation is. I mean, for internal reasons here in the US, uh, there is a a big distinction between a treaty that requires the advice and consent of the Senate and an executive agreement, which does not. Well, in international law, there is no difference. The moment that two states, two or more states, decide to undertake an international legal obligation and regard it as binding, whether it be called treaty, executive agreement, charter, covenant, uh, you call it uh, whatever you like, uh, it doesn't really make any difference uh, except for the psychological reason. That's, that's why the UN Charter is called a charter. Or the covenants of 66 uh, on human rights, they're called covenants. But what are they? They're essentially treaties. That's why this article says, uh, uh, whatever its particular designation, okay? So this is, uh, this is what we mean by treaty. There are bilateral treaties, multilateral treaties, uh, and uh, the, the concept is obvious uh, whether or not you have only two states uh, or you have uh, three or more states, uh, in which case uh, you have uh, a multilateral treaty. Well, when the question is, is about a bilateral treaty, for a state or for the Holy See to decide whether or not to enter into the treaty is no big deal. I mean, no brainer. 
I, is, it, is it satisfactory what you see in the legal instrument? It is worth, does it pursue your objectives? And that's it. When the question is about a multilateral treaty, when there are conflicted interests which are at stake among three or more parties, the situation becomes a bit trickier, okay? Various considerations enter into the decision by the Holy See whether or not to enter into a multilateral treaty. They could be fairly technical of the like, uh, are there financial burdens? Uh, are the obligation, do the obligations require implementing mechanism which becomes too complicated? Uh, boy, I mean, there are many considerations of this kind that enter into the picture. But there are two which are particularly significant. One is, uh, what is the legal and political significance of the treaty in question uh, for the Holy See and for the international community at large? You know, there are so-called codification treaties. At the UN, you know that one of the principal organs is the General Assembly. There is also a subsidiary organ which is called International Law Commission, and its objective is to uh, is to codify and, and develop international law. <clears throat> Over the years, uh, it has worked uh, on treaties uh, which have become brand names. For example, this treaty on treaties, uh, or the ones on diplomatic and consular relations. Well, in front of, uh, of uh, treaties like these, uh, there is such... Uh, a legal and political significance uh, that it should not be surprising uh, that the Holy See will become a party to them or at least uh, sign them uh, in addition to participating uh, in its negotiations. Or there can be a very strong moral dimension. Think about the treaty on uh, nuclear non-proliferation. Well, of course, the, the Holy See will not develop nuclear weapons, okay? So the question becomes, well, why should the Holy See be interested in all of this and become a party to a treaty like that? Well, when it was being drafted and finally signed in the 60s, it was the Soviet Union itself, you know, the ones who were saying, how many divisions has the Pope? It was the Soviet Union itself that asked the Holy See to intervene and take an active role simply because they were hoping that the very presence of the Holy See might put some pressure on countries like Brazil, Argentina, which are sizable countries, and also officially Catholic countries, and therefore would follow through uh, this idea of disarmament uh, and all the rest. So what I'm saying is that there are some treaties like this one here that, has, that have such a, long, uh, such a strong political and uh, moral dimension 
the whole position of the Holy See on peace, on disarmament, peace and justice, that the Holy See might take an active role in them, even when obviously the direct object is of practically no relevance to it, because as I said, the Holy See is not a nuclear power. Okay, so this, uh, this for, for, for these kinds of treaties. The situation becomes all the more dramatic, I should say, with so-called human rights uh, treaties. Well, as you know, I mean, uh, uh, there have been, uh, over the years, uh, uh, many treaties on human rights uh, that have been adopted uh, on all kinds of subjects, from torture uh, to discrimination against women, uh, racial discrimination, child, disability. Well, obviously, I mean, the Holy See, with the stance that it has uh, on uh, human dignity and human rights, uh, uh, is, is interested in these treaties. But we also know too well that um, as a consequence of the human fall, uh, the very concept of human rights nowadays uh, is not really that of rights which are embedded in natural morality, but they're obviously oftentimes a perversion of what really means human dignity. So it's, uh, it's not easy. And, uh, and in, in, in practice, what can and what has the Holy See done uh, in front of all of these treaties. Well, there are certain options that are open to the Holy See. The Holy See can participate in negotiating these treaties, and then when the time comes to sign, say that it is not in a position to sign it, simply because what is embodied in the treaty uh, is not consistent with the basic values of the Holy See. <coughs> This historically is not unprecedented. Even the very treaties which are at the origin of modern international law, the so-called Westphalia treaties of 1648, I mean, there was Fabio Chigi, who was then a diplomat, the nuncio to Cologne, and would then become Alexander VII as Pope a few years later. And the poor guy, I mean, he spent an enormous amount of time contributing to the negotiating of the two treaties of Westphalia, Osnabrück and Munster. But at the very end, the position of the Holy See was pretty critical against, against those two treaties. But still, it played an important negotiating role. In modern times, if you take the Convention Against Discrimination on Discrimination Against Women or the Convention on Disabilities, well, of course, the Holy See is in favor of, of not discriminating against women and is in favor again, again, people with disability. But if these instruments serve in the mind of very other states the purpose of promoting reproductive rights, including abortion, or um, having provisions in the Convention on Discrimination Against Women that might be interpreted as an attack 
on the church excluding women from ordination, the Holy See might well come to the conclusion that she's unable even to sign the treaty. And this is what she has done. You know, with the treaty, I hope that it is clear from the, from the handout, uh, you have the negotiating of the treaty, you have the signing of the treaty, then you have the ratification of the treaty. So signing, and you will see, there is the, I reproduced article 18 in the handout, creates an obligation not to defeat the object and purpose of the treaty, but is not yet uh, binding as a treaty on, uh, on the state. In order to become a party to the treaty, you have to ratify it. That's why if you see, if you check, it will say signed on a certain date and ratified on a certain date. Now, for states, this is very important because oftentimes it is signed by the government and ratified through parliamentary procedures. Okay, so there is this distinction here. So the Holy See can certainly come to the conclusion that it cannot even sign a treaty. It could instead sign a treaty because it doesn't see anything objectionable in the text of the treaty itself, uh, but... It, it doesn't ratify it for various reasons. I mean, in the case of the treaties on treaties, there is one treaties with, this, with states, another convention of treaties with international organization, another one on succession of treaties. You have the situation which might look paradoxically paradoxical that the Holy See has signed and ratified one signed but not ratified another, and not signed and not ratified another. I had tried to ask, I mean, various people at the, uh, at the Curia why it is so. I have never been able to come up with a satisfactory answer, but I mean, the basic, the basic issue is that a treaty allows various, uh, various stages and various political decisions. Or you can sign, ratify the treaty, but uh, place reservations to those. Once again, I reproduced here, if you want to read them, Convention on the Rights of the Child. You have three Holy See reservations that you can read there that is tending to exclude the application of certain uh, provisions vis-a-vis -vis the Holy See at least as unilateral statements by the Holy See. And you also have some interpretative declarations by the Holy See, where the Holy See says, well, yes, but I mean, this term, I understand, means so and so within the context of, of this treaty. So you see, there is this, um, there is this, uh, this possibility of taking... Uh, different positions vis-a-vis uh, -vis a certain treaty, and there are many considerations that go into that. Frankly, I do not know what uh, Austin Roos, who is going to talk uh, after me, thinks about uh, this whole situation here, but uh, I don't know to what extent placing a reservation uh, or making an interpretative declaration really uh, is really effective. Okay, it might be, it might not be. 
it, it might be more effective, I think, if there is a certain treaty that is satisfactory on its face to sign it and then before ratifying, seeing exactly what's happening with that treaty. Because, you know, with human rights treaties, it is not only what you read in the text. If you take, for example, the Convention on the Right of the Child, which has been signed and ratified by the Holy See, there is a mechanism handled by a certain committee that looks at the implementation of the treaty by the various parties to it. And so the Holy See has to submit reports every five years about what it is doing. But if you take a look at the exchange between the Holy See and these committees, and you see that the, committees, the committee is advocating for abortion, the redefinition of the family, even though none of it is in the treaty itself. And the Holy See, on the other hand, says, well, I think it was a predetermined dialogue. <coughs> there is not even the willingness to consider why we hold these different positions. Well, one can raise the question, was it really worth becoming a party to that treaty. Once again, I'm the first one to acknowledge that the Holy See knows it much better than poor me. And so if they have come to that conclusion, they will have had good reasons. And we go back to this very idea of the salvation of the souls. I mean, is it worth then ratifying a treaty, going through this painful exercise of discussing with the committee in order to contribute to the salvation of their souls and of other souls? Or is it, would, it, would it be better just to sign the treaty so that you indicate that, for example, for the Convention of the Right of the Child, in the face of the treaty itself, um, you are satisfied as much as you can be uh, of the text itself. But before ratifying, let us see what exactly is happening with this mechanism of implementation. I raise it as a question mark because I think that, uh, that, uh, that it's uh, an important question uh, that is certainly uh, present to, to Holy See diplomats. Okay, I will stop here. As I said, I wanted to give an overview about what is the Holy See, what is a treaty, and which are the basic problems uh, that arise uh, in front of even treaties that might look innocent uh, on the basis of their heading, but then if you scrub the surface, uh, you might find what you didn't want to. And therefore, there is the basic question of when and how should the Holy See become a party to that. Okay? Thank you. Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.